Good to see you. If, we, if, if we've not had a chance to meet, my name is Merle, serve as lead pastor here, and if you are a guest, whether you're here in the worship center with us or whether you're joining us online, uh, we consider it a real privilege. We're excited that uh, you're with us. We'd love to know about it, so uh, if you are online, just go to pleasantvalley.info and fill out the communication card. If you're here in the building, we've got a communication card that you can fill out and tear off and uh, give to us as you're leaving, put it in an offering basket uh, toward the very uh, back part of the building when you take off. And so, uh, why don't we give it up for the dads? Happy Father's Day to all of our dads. Um, this, is, uh, this is Father's Day, and uh, it being Father's Day, I think it would be fatherly malpractice if I failed to share with you a dad joke. <laughs> it's just such a mixed response every time I do that. All the dads are like, yes, one more dad joke to put in my dad joke arsenal. And all of the teenagers are going, I think I'm going to throw up now. And whenever you give us that response, that is encouragement to our ears, right, dads? There's nothing more than we enjoy, nothing more we enjoy more than to hear teenagers groan at our dad jokes. So, been pretty hot out, hadn't it? Did you hear about the guy who evaporated? He will be missed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm loving it. I was told another joke this morning, a uh, dad joke. There is a young man who understood what to get his father for Father's Day. Don't buy us ties. Barbecue bacon, that's a good thing. Cinnamon rolls, that's a good thing. But a book of dad jokes. Score, Right? How many of you dads would like a book of dad jokes? Very good. Dads are a little bit sleepy right now, uh, so we're going we're gonna to wake you up. It's also Juneteenth, and we want to say to uh, our black brothers and sisters, happy Juneteenth. We celebrate that with you as well. And let me just say this. Um, over the past number of years, we have been uh, working on uh, racial relationships with intentionality, and um, I've been working with my friends uh, over the past uh, seven years, having conversations, trying to do some work to move the needle a bit in that area, and uh, we've taken the staff through some specific training. Um, uh, this past year, we've had a... Uh, We've had a group that has gone through some study as well. So I just want you to know in the days ahead, be prepared to hear from us as we talk to you about a class, a group that you can participate in if you're committed at all to encouraging and developing uh, relationships across the relational barriers that exist. That's going to be coming up in the days ahead. Uh, Past couple of weeks, while Karen and I were doing some training, uh, Pastor Corey and Greg Ely spoke, and they did a great job, did they not? We celebrate them. Appreciate them very much. We're taking a three-week break from a series um, called Jesus Says, which is based upon the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And so, we will jump back into that next week. Today, I want to preach from a text that was considered by many of us, and especially by, like, literary critics, the greatest story that has ever been told. As a matter of fact, this story that Jesus told is so incredibly powerful that even folks who do not have faith in Jesus Christ are moved by the emotion, moved by the grace, moved by the honesty, moved by the characters in this story. And this story will be familiar to a lot of you uh, who are folks who've been in the church for a long period of time, and my hope is that you will listen with brand new ears because we're going to look at it through a little bit of a different lens today. And so you'll see it coming up on the screen Luke chapter 15. He, this is Jesus, also said, a man had two sons. 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. This would be he and the older brother. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. <clears throat> when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I've <clears throat> sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up. He went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf and because, because he has, has him back safe and sound. Then he, this is the older brother, became angry and didn't go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders yet. You never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's a powerful story. You can see why people who are experts in literature would say this is, a, this is an exceptional story. This is the greatest story that has ever been told. And there have been painters over the years who have tried to capture the emotion and tried to capture the intrigue and the mystery and the surprise and the sorrow and the brokenness of this particular Story And one of them was Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted two paintings of the return of the prodigal or two paintings of the prodigal son. The first one that he painted, he painted when he was 30 years of age. And in that particular version, Rembrandt places the prodigal son in a, in a brothel. And he paints it with really vivid colors. And the prodigal son has... Uh, a glass of drink in this hand. He's got a prostitute sitting on his lap. And Rembrandt painted his face on the figure of the prodigal. In his second version, which he painted much later in his life, as a matter of fact, the last painting that he ever did, as if he was wanting to make a final declaration to the world 
this painting is so different. It's got a different view on the story. The mood is, is fundamentally different. For one, everything is dark. The colors are muted. You can feel whenever you look at the, the sun, you can feel the, the brokenness in the son who's kneeling before the father. And you can see the overwhelming compassion of the father. In the first painting, Rembrandt focused on the prodigal. In the second, the focus is on the father. In the second painting, you'll notice Rembrandt doesn't put his face on the prodigal. And people who have studied Rembrandt, biographers would say that he didn't want us to look at that painting and say, oh, look, there is Rembrandt. He wants us to look at that painting and say, oh, there am I. There's me. I'm the prodigal. And more importantly than seeing uh, uh, the prodigal, Rembrandt rightly understood the story that Jesus told by putting the focus on the father. We call the story the parable of the prodigal son. There are three characters in the story. One is the rebel son who went away from the love of the father. The other is the rebel son who stayed at home, but whose heart was far from the father as well. And then you have the loving father who pursued them both. Now, whenever you hear the word prodigal, probably not a word that you and I use every day in conversations, but a definition of the prodigal is not runaway. The prod a prodigal means this, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. The prodigal son spends all that he has that's been given to him until he has nothing left. He has been extravagantly reckless and wasteful. But there's another definition of prodigal. Having or giving on a lavish scale. That's the bigger point of the story, not how the prodigal son wasted his life, but on how the father, if you will, wasted all that he had in order to welcome the prodigal back home. The father expressed lavish, extravagant love to both of his sons. He loves rebels who have walked away from him, and he loves rebels who have stayed near the house with him as well. His love is extravagant. Now, why did Jesus tell the story? Now, there's a reason behind the parable. Prior to this, Jesus told a parable of a woman who lost a coin and a shepherd who lost a sheep. And how the woman searched everywhere to find the coin and how the shepherd left 99 in order to go find the one sheep. And then he tells the story of the prodigal sons and the waiting father. But the purpose behind telling the story is found in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, you and I are in the parable of the two sons and the extravagant loving father. We simply have to ask ourselves the question, who are we in the story? Are we the individuals who have run away from God? We have gone in the opposite direction. We've left behind all the goodness that God has for us. Or are we like the son who stayed home, who is judgmental and bitter in his heart towards the father's gracious love for the other son? The scribes and the Pharisees are the older brother. The younger brother are is represented as the tax collectors and the sinners. 
So this is what I'm gonna do. I wanna approach this parable wearing two sets of lens. Now, a parable just has one point that it makes. Just one point. And the point is about the extravagant love of the Father. But what I wanna do is I wanna look at this text through the lens of a father. And I want us to think about not only the love that God has for us, but I want us as parents to think about how is it that this parable might help us treat our children. Okay, are you ready? Okay, you gotta, you gotta be better than that. Are you ready to move on? Okay, so you gotta, you gotta lean into this because again, we're hearing it with both ears and we're looking at it through two sets of lens. If you're a parent, hear it this way. All of us need to hear it in the way that the parable was intended. So if we need to hear anything at all, we need to hear this truth. Children need to hear this truth from parents and all of us need to hear this truth from God. Truth number one is this, you are free. You read in verse 12 and 13 that the younger son goes to the father and to be indelicate basically says, I wish you were dead so I could get my inheritance now. I know I'm gonna get it one day when you die, but listen, let's just pretend you're dead to me, give me my inheritance. And the father is willing to do so. And the son packs up everything he has, all the assets and all the wealth that has just been given to him that is supposed to help him. And he goes off as far away from his father's house as he possibly can and wastes his life. Part of parenting is giving children roots to grow but then giving them wings to fly. We are to give our children age-appropriate freedom and age-appropriate responsibility. The point of raising children is that they will, they will go at the right time. Kenneth Chafin put it like this, when you say to your sons or daughters you're free, you're acknowledging that they are other persons from you. You are telling them you are not an extension of me, you are not my form of immortality, you're not an extension of my ego. You are an individual created by God, responsible to God with everything that you have been given. And kids, let me tell you, the hardest thing that parents ever have to do is to give you freedom to make decisions that have hard consequences. And every parent does that. Every parent does that. Whenever my parents gave me car keys, that was a tremendous risk for them but they didn't wanna to have to drive me around at a certain age to go to school or to get to work. But that was a risk, it was hard for them to do. Now when Karen and I got married, uh, me being the seventh child, that wasn't hard for them at all. It was like, please go. We've had enough of you, we've had enough of you in this house for all of this time, please. Be warmed and be fed, God bless you. Have a wonderful life. God gives his children freedom because he wants us to be free to choose him and to choose what is right. You go back to the Garden of Eden. God could have made Adam and Eve robotic and their response to God could have been coerced obedience, but he gave them the freedom and he said, listen, I'm giving you all of these Wonderful garden. You've got so much in front of you. There is one guardrail I want you to stay away from. It is not good for you. Why would God do that if he knew that they had the potential to choose the right thing? Because God wants us in freedom to choose him. 
And there is all, always inherent in the freedom to choose, the freedom to choose what is wrong. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to us, but the end of that way is death and destruction. And that was certainly the case with Adam and Eve. They chose against the will of God, and you and I have been experiencing the consequences ever since. That time, human beings have been born with a bent towards sin, a bent towards we want to be our own God. God, risk that if you will in order that you and I could have the choice to respond to him freely or not. Children need to hear in an appropriate fashion, age-appropriate ways, that they are free. God wants us to know that we are free as well. There's another truth that goes with that, and that is this. You are forgiven. The young man in the story made a choice against the father's will against what was best. The father allowed him to experience the consequences of it. And the father was going to be willing to welcome the son if the son ever decided to come to his senses. One of the, one of the best phrases in this story is verse 17, when he came to his senses. And so let me just throw this out here for a minute. Some of you are running from all that is good and all that is God, and you're chasing down a path that is destructive for you and your family. Are you willing to come to your senses to know that that direction is destructive? It will end poorly. You come to your senses. This is for this young man his heart is no longer a spin zone. He can't spin things anymore. He can't say, well, I'm really having a good time and things are really much better than I think they are. He said, I'm starving to death and I'm doing something that a Jewish person would never do. I'm taking care of pigs. You don't do that if you're a Jew. He realized in a moment what he had done. He realized the love that he had walked away from. He realized the depth to which he had fallen. He realized the suffering that he had brought to his father. He realized as well that he could choose to return to the father. This was a moment pregnant with transformation. God gives us these moments in our life that are moments of pregnant possibility to change. The question is, will we seize them? Will we act upon the moment? Will we act upon the conviction? Will we act upon the circumstances? Will we act upon the words from somebody else that God puts in our lives? But his realization didn't just stop there. His realization moved into action. He had to do something. It isn't enough to say, I intend to change. It isn't enough to say, I think it would be a good thing to return to God. I think it would be a good thing to let God transform my life. He needed to act upon the intentions for transformation to take place. That's called repentance. Repentance is not only a change of mind, but it's a change of direction. And so what does he do? He gets up and he makes his way back to the Father. His heart turned toward home, and then his body followed. And then he begins to think through, what am I going to say to my dad? How many of you have ever messed up and you know that you're going to have to own up and you've practiced saying what you're going to say? Any of you done that? Oh, I remember doing that. I remember doing that. 17, I've told this story before, but it's such a good story and it's, it's got such a lesson to it. And every time I tell it, it's a bit cathartic. It reminds me that, that forgiveness does exist. And it reminds me that there was a point in time in my life that I was much more stupid than I am right now. And so I was 17 years of age. The brain was not fully formed, not a criticism, just scientific truth. Can I get an amen? Brain was not fully formed. And so I was taking out uh, not this Karen, but another Karen on a first date. We went to a drive-in movie. It started to rain and so decided to leave and go home. And it was dark outside and uh, decided that 
what would be an appropriate thing to do on the first date was to put my arm around Karen, and while we were driving around a corner in the dark during the rain, that she needed to know that my lips worked. And so I decided to live in bliss for a moment, and my bliss ended with a bang as I somehow there was a pole that came right out in the middle of the street. I have no idea why it happened, but I, I wrecked my mom and dad's brand new car, and they were getting ready to go on vacation, and the last words I told my dad, he was so hesitant to give me the car keys. He was giving me freedom. My car was not was not chick-worthy. It was, at that point in time, a white 1969 tiny Datsun pickup. Google that. Not like a Mustang or a Camaro. It, it, it looked as stupid as I just described it. And so, I decided... Last thing I told my dad is, listen, I'm 17 years old. I've been driving for a year. I'm not going to wreck your mom and dad's car. Famous last words. And then I had, to, I had to call my dad after we got out of the car and after the horn was just blaring in a neighborhood. And I couldn't get it to stop. And so I'm telling you the truth here. And so finally got it to stop, went to somebody's house where all the lights came on, and this was the day before they had cell phones, and I had to borrow somebody's phone and call my dad, and I was rehearsing what I was going to say to my dad, and, and just like, uh, Dad, I've been in a wreck, we are okay, but mom's car is not. That's what I wanted to say, but I'm... I don't think I said that. I say, Dad, I'm an idiot. I am an idiot, Dad. Stupid, I wrecked the car. It says, verse 21, Father, he's been rehearsing this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's rehearsing this and in the rehearsing of it, he's feeling the weight of what he has done. He feels the weight of his sin. He feels the weight, not only of the sin against his father, but he realizes that he sinned against God in this. He saw in his mind, I bet, the suffering of the father whenever he left. Maybe the face of the father as he walked away was just imprinted on his mind. And then, and then, and then, he saw his father running toward him, and he comes to the father, and he doesn't demand that the father do anything. He basically says, God, I, Father, I leave my destiny in your hands. I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. What made all of that possible? The love of the father. It was the Father's love that made forgiveness possible. It was the Father's love that made the Son's change actual. It was the Father's love. He believed that he could go back home. He believed that somehow his Father would receive him, maybe not as a son, but he could be received back into the Father's presence. Here's a prerequisite for receiving forgiveness from anybody, but especially God. The prerequisite for receiving forgiveness is a recognition that you need it. And to realize that you need forgiveness, you have to have an understanding of sin. Paul says we all sin and fall short of God's glory at his perfect standard. Paul says the payoff for sin, the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God. But he also says, along with that, is the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says that in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins accordance, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You have freedom, and your freedom has responsibility. And if in your freedom you have chosen to walk away from the Father's love, if you're willing to come to your senses and acknowledge your sin and your brokenness, there is forgiveness 
that God has available. And maybe just kind of pivot for a minute here and say, are there people in your life that you need to forgive? Is there a child, parent, that you need to forgive? Children, is there a father with God's grace and God's help you need to forgive? There's another truth that children need to hear from parents and we need to hear from God, and it's this. You are wanted. You're wanted. Verse 20, it says, he got up, he went to his father, and then Jesus, the master storyteller, says what I think are some of the the most beautifully, wonderful, grace-filled words that have ever been spoken and ever been recorded He got up and he went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He was feeling it deep in his gut. He ran, he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him. When my father showed up after I wrecked the car, I did not see him running towards me, throwing his arms around me and said, my son was lost, but now he is found. It was like he walked up and it was just like, son, I trusted you until you give me a reason not to trust you and I don't trust you anymore. Now that was truth. That's a truth bomb. He dropped a mic right then. And I know it was true. This young man was surprised by the response of the father. Just like I would have been completely blown away if Linwood William Meese would have done that to me. He was, Linwood was doing what a father does. It was like, oh my goodness. Now I love my son and he loved me and, and we got over it 10 years later. No, we got... We got over it, and we got through it. It was a a learning thing, and my father loved me in that. But to this son's surprise, he experienced a waiting father who wanted him. Do you know what it's like to be wanted? Do you know what it's like to feel that you want to be wanted and you're not? And you've got that longing inside of yourself going, I want to be wanted by the people who are closest to me. He saw a father who was running towards him. And and the father did not do what he could have legally done based upon Deuteronomy chapter 21. For a son to disrespect a father the way this young son did when he said, give me my inheritance now. That kind of pride, that kind of ingratitude, that kind of rebellion was literally worthy of death. The father could have gathered the men of the village and they could have stoned that son to death based upon what he had just requested. But they didn't do that. And he didn't experience what Jewish communities often did when they didn't stone a person to death, where they would perform a ceremony called kezaza, in which they would have kept the young man from coming into the village, and they would have said, we have declared you dead to all of us in this community. You are dead to us, but they didn't do that. Instead, all of the community came with the father and they ran with the father, the father who had waited and the father who wanted. And they saw this extravagant gift of love, this extravagant gift of grace. Reminds me of Another part of the story, to see an adult man, an adult Jewish man running would have been considered absolutely undignified because Jewish men wouldn't expose their legs in public, but it would be like the father would have grabbed the cloak that he was wearing, tucked it underneath his belt, and he started running. 
He didn't care about the religious tradition. He didn't care about the cultural tradition. He didn't care about being viewed as being undignified. A son who had been dead is now alive. A son who was lost has now been found, and he wants the son to know he wants them, him that much. And I want you to know that God wants you even more. God, undignified, naked on a cross in the person of Jesus Christ, died for our sins with outstretched arms, died an undignified kind of death in order to say to you, you are wanted by me. It doesn't matter how far you've gone, doesn't matter what you have done, you are wanted and you are welcomed by me. I read a story about a, a judge named Lee Shapiro. He was known as the hugging judge. His, his motto was this, don't bug me, just hug me. That was his motto. And he would often greet others with a great big bear hug, greet them with a bear hug, and they'd put an a adhesive back uh, heart sticker on them. He'd just put it on their lapel. And he was visiting a, a facility with mentally disadvantaged people, and he noticed there was a young man eating lunch by himself. The young man's name was Leonard, and Leonard had food smeared all over his face and all over his chest. And when Shapiro saw him, his initial thought, well, I'll pass by, and maybe I'll come back some other time when they clean Leonard up. But he changed his mind in an instant. He went over to Leonard, and then he just gave him a big old hug, and he put a heart sticker on him, and Leonard broke out into this big ear-to-ear -ear grin and then began to try and say some words that just came out as guttural sounds. As Shapiro was leaving, he noticed that there were these two nurses over on the side of the room, and they were just weeping, and he went up to them and said, did I do something wrong? Did I, should I not have done that? And they said, oh, no, Mr. Shapiro. You need to know that Leonard hadn't smiled or tried to talk for 10 years, and it was your expression of welcoming and wanting him that brought about that kind of joy and that kind of expression. Jesus is greater than Lee Shapiro, and he wants to bring joy to your life so that you can express your heart towards God. You're free. You're forgiven. You're wanted, and you're celebrated. The story started with estrangement, estrangement and now it ends with enjoyment. It started with the breaking of a relationship, and it ends with the reconciliation of a relationship. It starts with sorrow in the heart of the father, and it ends with the father celebrating the child. Children, parents, need to be celebrated. Children need to be celebrated. They need to know that we enjoy them and that they're not obnoxious and they're not a nuisance, but they really are enjoyable. I, I, I didn't come from a family that celebrated each other much. And all of my life, it has been an uphill climb for me to choose celebration naturally. I have to work really hard at that because that was just not part of our, our family dynamic. And I'm not blaming my mom and dad. I'm simply confessing that was part of our growing up. But I do remember a few occasions in my life where my dad celebrated me, and I have, over the years, squeezed every ounce of life and memory I can out of that one moment in particular. I was nine years of age. We were driving 
back home to Texas from Colorado. The Plymouth Belvedere was packed full of six people. We had a trailer behind us, and we were driving down the dark roads of the northern part of Texas. Everybody else was asleep because my dad was one of those dads back in the day. If you go somewhere, you're going to drive till you get there. If it's 16 hours, 17 hours, we're driving till we get there. I don't care how miserable everybody is, we're going to drive till we get there. And we, we made infrequent bathroom stops, and so there was a lot of pain in these trips until, until we stopped. Everybody else was asleep. I was the only one awake, and I was helping Dad navigate the roads to take. This was back before, you know, GPS and all of that. That's the maps that you unfold. And I still remember my dad saying to me, son, I am so proud of you. You're the only one awake while everybody else is asleep, and you know how to read a map. And it was very simple. But to this day, I remember that celebration, that affirmation. What does the father in the story do when the son comes home? He celebrates him. He says, quickly, bring out the best robe. What was the best robe? The best robe was the father's robe. It was the most expensive robe. It was the robe that signified the father's wealth and the father's position. He says, bring out a ring and put it on his finger. The ring would have probably been the signet ring that the father would use to stamp something to make it official. And that was a sign of authority. And that was a sign that you have been welcomed back into the family. You're given the authority and responsibility as a family member again, as a son again. Put sandals on his feet. Slaves and servants went barefooted. Sons had sandals on their feet. Kill a fatted calf. They didn't do that just every single day. That was on a rare occasion. And the father says, listen, we're going to have a big stinking party here because the son who was lost is now found. I waited and I wanted him and he is back and I am simply going to celebrate When you come to faith in Jesus, the Bible says there is joy going on in heaven. When you repent of your sin and you receive forgiveness and you experience the wanting of God, then there is a celebration that happens in heaven over you coming to your senses and coming back home. God expressed extravagant love for you in the sending of his son. The father had to pay the price to welcome the son back home. The son had already spent at least a third of the father's wealth. And then the father then had to have a fatted calf killed. That would have been expensive to him. He gave him his robe. He gave him a ring. It was all costly to the father, but he did it willingly. And the same thing is true for God, for all of us. He willingly gave his very best in order that we could experience new life. He gave his son on the cross. He withheld judgment that we rightly deserve, placed it upon his son, and then has given us life instead. We all need to hear that we are free to respond to God's love, direction, and authority on our lives if we want to flourish. We're all free. You can make that choice or you can make a choice to keep running from God. My hope would be that you would stop running and you would turn around and be caught by the God who's been pursuing you all of your life. You can be forgiven. You can experience God wanting and celebrating you if you allow yourself to be caught by his love. Parents, children need freedom at the age-appropriate pace. They need to know they're forgiven. They need to know they are wanted. They need to be celebrated. Let's pray together. And after I pray, we're going to have a special blessing for all of the males in the room. But right now, if God has been 
stirring in you, and you know it's God stirring in you, and you experience this invitation that God is saying, come back home, stop your running, experience my love for you. I encourage you to do that. If you've never said yes to Christ, you can do it right now. And simply talk to God in your language with your words. God, I'm, I'm broken. I've run far away from you. I want to come back home. I want, my, I want to be transformed. I want to be changed. I have sinned against you. I believe that Jesus is the answer to offer me not only forgiveness, but to be the bridge between me and you so that I can flourish in this life. I can experience being wanted. I can experience being celebrated. And so today, God, as much as I know about myself, I commit to as much as I know about you. If you're willing just to talk to God in your words, the Bible says if you call on him, you'll be saved. And I would encourage you, if you've done that, if you're online, just simply let us know with the uh, communication card at pleasantvalley.info. If you're here, encourage you to take your communication card, tell us the decision you've made, give it to one of us who will be standing at the back of the worship center. So Father, have your way. Help us to respond to your invitation this day. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to invite all of the males, whether you are a child, whether you are a teen, or whether you are an adult, I'm going to ask all the men, all the males to come forward right now. So we can all stand together. Everybody stand together. All of you come forward. We're not done yet. We'll be done here in about five, six minutes. Move in close. Keep on moving in. Please come in, come in, come in, come in. Keep on coming. We had, uh, we had a little bit more than this, maybe 50, 75 more men at the nine o'clock service in Ladies, what I would want you to know is uh, in many churches around the country, there are far more of you than there are of men. And this is a good sign that there are uh, men who have been willing to say yes to Jesus and to pursue him. And so, guys, let me just say this. Um, every one of you is a beloved son of the Most High God. Every one of you. Every one of you is wanted. Every one of you is celebrated. Every one of you are unique. And I just want you to know that as a church, uh, I am grateful to be standing shoulder to shoulder with you. As I said at the nine o'clock service, if I could get all of the men together at once, there's enough testosterone in here and enough faith in here that I'd be willing to charge hell with water pistols with you. So what I want to do is I just want to bless you, and so let's pray together. So loving God, Heavenly Father, maker of all that is seen and unseen, we want to bless you. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you that you've adopted us as your children and as have made us heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for making a home for us, not only in this local congregation, but in the kingdom of God. God, we thank you for fathers and for those who have been fathers to us. We're grateful, God, for their protection and provision, for their encouragement, for their wisdom, for their correction and persevering love. We are especially grateful for the ways they guided us into your saving embrace too often, God, we took and take their love and sacrifice for granted. Forgive us of that. Instead, God, help us to live in such a way that our words and our actions bring honor to them and most importantly, honor to you. Merciful Lord, for many, this is a day full of joy and celebration, but for others, it's an especially painful day.
So would you pour out your healing on those who are grieving the love they long to receive from their father but never did experience? It's a real wound. I pray you'd bring healing to the father wounds that many men live with. I pray that you would bring healing to those who are missing a father who has died or they're missing a child that has died or has walked away from the family. God, would you rain down peace on families that are separated by distance and disagreement on families that are plagued by disappointment, abandonment, addiction, or abuse? And compassionate God, would you bring your healing, bring your consolation and your peace to men who desire to be a father, but that desire has not been fulfilled, to fathers who are exhausted as they labor to have the appropriate amount of life and time that's given to being an attentive husband, a loving father, and a person of integrity in the marketplace. God, the need is deep. We believe that your grace is enough, and we place our hope in you. So God, I, I thank you for every man, every teenager, every boy here today. You have made each of them unique. Every one of them has your fingerprints on them. Some of them are gifted in working with their hands, others with finances, others with music, others with technology. Some are vegans for some reason. Others are carnivores, amen. Some are like Jacob and others like Esau. God, would you reveal your purpose and plan for every one of their lives? Would you bless them and protect them? Would you deepen their love and trust of you? Would you strengthen them? Would you empower them? Would you anoint them with your Holy Spirit that their faith, their influence, their achievement would bring you honor and glory? Would you deliver them from anger, from lust, from greed, from apathy, from passivity? And would you help each of them to have the passion of David, the faith of Abraham, the mind of Paul, the witness of Andrew, the leadership of Moses, the wisdom of Solomon, the boldness of Peter. And most of all, conform them, conform us to the image and likeness of Jesus, that we may be servant leaders willing to sacrifice for others, and for the kingdom. Receive our thanks and praise again for these men and the men in the making, for they are valuable to us, and they are valuable to you. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray, and everybody said,